Amen. Uh, two weeks ago on a Monday, I got to share the gospel with uh, Michael Garmy to a Pakistani fellow. His name is Atif, and I met him uh, this summer. My wife and I were downtown and met him. And uh, hearing him talk about Islam and hearing Pastor Gilmore sing just now, I'm telling you, there is no difference. And uh, think about what the Lord Jesus has done for us, as was just, uh, just demonstrated in the song. And... Uh, you know, Muhammad never did anything like that. You know, Allah has nothing on that. That was very, very good. Praise the Lord. I want you to find Romans 7. This summer, my wife and I celebrated 20 years of marriage. And uh, that's exciting. That was a milestone uh, for us. And uh, we uh, enjoyed uh, just the memory of those 20 years. And, and in fact, we... Uh, we were uh, just downtown, that's when we met Atif, actually it was that same time we were downtown, and, and uh, we were walking around the downtown area, we uh, just really only had one night to, to be away, um, but uh, we, we were walking down kind of by Red Arrow Park, you know, kind of downtown by the Marcus Center, and it was hot, it was hot, it was super uncomfortable, um, but you know, it was just neat, just walking around, just she and me, and uh, didn't have any kids there with us. And uh, we walked and got a Starbucks. Whether you think that's right or wrong, we did. And it was nice. <laughs> and uh, it was good. And uh, part of what we talked about when we were away there that day was just the blessing of being married. And after 20 years, you know, memories and, and it's good. And uh, I can say this with a full heart. Uh, I think marriage is better after 20 years than it was in the first year. It hasn't gotten any, uh, <laughs> it's got, it hasn't gotten any less exciting, I'll say that much. And uh, it's a blessing. I like being married. So if I can give you one piece of advice here today, I would say you should try it. <laughs> you should get married. I'm all about it. I think it's a good idea. And, um, and I say if you're going to do it, do it for a long time. You know, uh, Get married and get married forever. So I like it. Actually, uh, the day we got married, we did some kind of foolish things. Um, probably did the right thing, but good grief. It was kind of foolish. Um, we had some guests coming from out of town, and uh, so we decided to do the rehearsal on the same day as the wedding, just to make it more convenient for all of our guests. And is that right? She's shaking her head. Oh, as I said, no, I think that's right. Oh, I shouldn't look at you. I thought you were saying I'm saying it wrong. So anyway, we had a rehearsal uh, the same day. We got married on a Friday, and uh, I got married on a Friday because I wanted to be in church on Sunday. Amen? Amen? Okay, so, and I didn't want to go to church the next day, so... Uh, thought we'd get married on Friday, you know, give us a day to whatever. Okay, so um, we got married on a Friday, so we did the rehearsal Friday morning, and then went out for lunch with, you know, the, the wedding party, had a couple hours, had to be back at church for pictures, wedding, uh, reception, and so on. Well, um, I remember the day, uh, obviously there's a lot happening, you know, in your heart that day, and, you know, excitement, and so on. And, well, after the, re after the rehearsal dinner, that lunch, uh, I remember I had to run around town and get uh, pieces of like uh, I think RCA cables for the projector for the reception and I mean I was all around town getting stuff super stressed out I remember I had to order a correspondence course that I had to finish and I just man whatever it was super stressful and uh, got to the church there later that afternoon and my wife is being waited on hand and foot by like 18,000 people and you know, I'm stressing out. Oh, I got the cord. Got to set the projector. Anyway, so it was a blessing. You know, the wedding was good. 
The wedding was long. Uh, it was long. It was like two hours long, I think. And uh, uh, Pastor Campbell, it was very verbose. And uh, I said some things in the beginning. It just got long. It was long. And, uh, but it was good. Actually, it all turned out okay. Um, ultimately, we said the right words at the right times and uh, signed the right document and everything was, was done. So after a very long uh, reception line, reception, everything, we finally got in the limousine and drove off. And it was like after 10, right? It was like L-A-T. E. I mean, it was late. And I remember sitting in the car, got in the limo. And uh, of course, you know, the funny thing, we got in the limo, and there's a window between the driver and the back, and the window was open. And I remember driving away, and I'm kind of looking at this guy going, can you close that window? Because this is not like a three-person party here. You know? <laughs> <laughs> he did. He closed it. That was fine. Um, so I remember getting in the limo, uh, and I looked over at my wife, and I said, oh, I don't ever want to do that again. <laughs> To which she responded, good. <laughs> okay, so true story. And then we did have a nice honeymoon, so. Uh, part of our wedding is we made vows to one another. And uh, actually, uh, Caleb and Emma's wedding recently, those were sweet vows if you're at that wedding. Uh, they memorized them. Wow. I didn't memorize mine. I don't think I could have done it. But they did a good job. Had theirs memorized. They were very, uh, you know, very personal. Uh, how they shared them was good. But part of their vows were the same as part of my vows. And uh, they said something to the effect of, till death, do us part. And so my wife and I made a decision that day. And we actually made a decision before that day, but that day we actually made it public that what we were doing was forever. It was going to be till death do us part. And uh, we meant it. At least I did. I think she did. We meant it. Um, I'm sure there's been times she's doubted it, but we meant it, okay? Uh, till death do us part. Uh, I think it was about 10 years ago or so, uh, we did a missions trip to Jordan. And uh, I'd never been to the Middle East before, so I, I was certain this was going to be the last thing I did in my life, you know? We were going to get our heads cut off, and it was going to be some dramatic, you know, they'd write missionary biographies about me. Uh, so before the trip, I um, was pretty thoughtful of the whole thing, you know. And uh, so I wrote my, light, my wife a, a little note. And I uh, wrote her a note. I actually wrote a note to her, wrote a note to pastor, and then wrote a note to my in-laws. And I thought, if I'm dead and can't speak for myself as well, I want to do it. Uh, in, these, in these notes. And uh, so I wrote a note to pastor and asked him, you know, in the event of, I mean, this is so dramatic, you know, um, in the event that I die a martyr, um, you know, please help my wife sort through, you know, all of what's happening here and, and gave him, you know, some, some of my desires, you know, and asked him to help lead at that point. And uh, wrote a letter to my in-laws because obviously at, at that point they would sense the need in my wife's life and, uh, you know, I wanted to give them some thoughts about you know, really what are my desires, you know, and just where I want her and the family to go or stay, frankly, was more the thought. But then I wrote a letter to my wife. And in the letter, um, I remember saying to her things about, well, I shouldn't say it. She's never read it, you know. Hopefully she never reads it. I don't want to give, give it all away, you know. Um, but I, I reiterated my love for her in the letter, and I thought that was a good thing to do. I remember crying as I'm writing this letter. I think this is dumb. I'm not even, she's never going to read it, you know. 
But anyway, so I reiterated my love for her, talked about the kids, uh, my love for the kids, what I expected to happen with the kids, you know, some things to do even financially. Uh, we talked about what to do with the uh, uh, $400 that she would have left and, <laughs> you know, how to, how to make it all make, make sense. And uh, I did actually end the letter. I'm telling you all this. You, I know. Cover your ears. I don't want you to hear the rest. Okay. Um, I actually said in the letter at the end, I said it would do no uh, dishonor to me for you to remarry. And uh, I'll, be, I'll be honest with you, I meant that. Because it would be very selfish for me to assume otherwise. So, you know, at the time we had, I don't think we had all seven kids, probably not. But, you know, we had little kids. Um, you know, there would be, there would be a huge uh, need bank that my wife would need filled. And uh, I could totally conceive that if I was gone, she would want to marry. Obviously, there would be nobody <laughs> as incredible as me. <laughs> I know. I totally get it, you know. So I, I feel bad for the guy. I mean, man. <laughs> no, I'm, whatever. Um, but hey, I did, I did want her, and this is the thought, if she was to marry again, I just didn't want her to feel bad about it, you know. Um, and, you know, I'm just saying. And in fact, I actually told Pastor in the letter, hey, uh, you know, help guide her in this, because I think it'd be good for her to marry again, so. All right, so, uh, Romans 7, <laughs> Romans 7, let's just read the first three verses. He says, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she should be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. And I want to preach a message I've entitled, Dead and Remarried. Dead and Remarried. Let's just pray quick. Lord, I pray that you would uh, give us understanding. Uh, we believe the things that are talked about in, in this chapter, the one previous and, and uh, the next to follow, are, uh, these are things that, that are spiritually discerned. I pray that you would give us understanding by the Spirit. And uh, Lord, we want to understand our uh, connection to you, our our union with you. And so, Lord, I pray that you give us understanding in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, well, uh, go back to chapter 5, and I'm not going to, I really do want to focus through chapter 7, and I hate to break it to you, I'm going to read the whole chapter through the course of this. So there's going to be a little bit of reading we're going to do, but I want you to think a little bit about uh, the, the earlier part of Romans. So Romans chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, really 1, 2, and 3, uh, but then 4 and then into 5, uh, this is kind of broadly speaking, but what the writer is doing is he is essentially unpacking universal condemnation. And so he does it step by step to show that the whole world is uh, condemned. Everybody is condemned. doesn't matter what your background is or even how you respond to righteous standards. Everybody is condemned. And then he goes to great length to defend universal justification or a universal offer of justification that's based solely on faith in Jesus Christ. So those first chapters of Romans give us profound gospel truth. And everybody's condemned. Anyone can be saved. Jesus did it all. So that's the first chapters of Romans. Once you look at chapter 5, 
And uh, notice verse number 8. He says, But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So that's all very much in line with what he's been talking about. Justification, delivered from wrath, through what Jesus did. But verse 10 then is a transition in the book from justification um, teaching, uh, from justification to sanctification. Look what he says here in verse 10. He says, For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So he now transitions. He says, okay, so if all of this was true, that while we were enemies, God was powerful enough and loving enough to make a way of reconciliation, how much more now that we are reconciled can he save us by his life? So chapter 5, verse 10 is where he shifts now. He's going to talk about the life being reconciled. Do you follow that? All right, so continuing down there, I want you to find verse 17. And I'm just giving you an overview of some of this. Verse 17, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, and the word reigned is a pretty important word for what's coming up in his argument. For if by, the offense of one, uh, uh, by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. And that leads you right into chapter 6. So he's establishing now the power of the reign of grace. And uh, actually, as you look at those verses, I think of it this way. He's showing the way of the natural life, the uh, first birth life, versus the power of the new life, the spiritual life. The reign of one that's been replaced now by the reign of another. And uh, the reign of sin is over. The reign of grace has begun. So going into chapter 6, which is where pastor's been preaching now, and he's going to continue to do so. I want you to notice verses 6 and 7. It says then again, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve, uh, serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Uh, what are the three key words of Romans 6? And I know you all know this. What are the three key words of Romans 6? Okay, and pastor's been talking about no. We haven't gotten to reckon yet, but he's talked about no. And uh, the no of Romans 6 is not natural no. Uh, he's having to say this because intuitively we think differently. And uh, experientially we tend to think differently. So he's saying you've got to know this. Know this because this is not a promise. This is fact. Know this. And then we're going to talk about in church probably even this Sunday or next Sunday. Reckon it to be so. 
That's what he's talking about here. Reckon these things to be so, because you may not feel like it, but you've got to reckon it to be true, and then yield so that your experience will follow. Yield to the, to the power of what's being said here. That's Romans chapter 6. But I want you to notice that as we come to chapter 7, um, what he's going to do then is he's going to show us how our experience, and then into chapter 8, lines up with what he just said in Romans chapter 6. And so I want to give you three thoughts here today, and it has to do with our man. And so the first thought is simply this, the weakness of our man. The weakness of our man. So I'm going to read now a number of verses, so bear with me. Why don't you follow along uh, in your Bible. I want you to look at 714. And I'm going to read right to the end of the chapter, uh, 714. And so here's what it says. This is chapter 7. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For, what, um, for that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law, that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ. Um, I'll be honest with you, in the whole Bible, this is one of my... Uh, one of my least favorite sections to read. And I don't like reading uh, Romans 7 right there at the end. I don't like to read it because I get it. <laughs> Man, I totally get it. Uh, you know, I read it and I think, I'm tracking with him. And uh, that's why I don't like to read it. It bothers me. Um, have you ever felt that way? Have you ever read Romans 7 and you thought, oh yeah, I know exactly what he's talking about. I have. I've read it and thought, Man, I feel like the things that I know I should do, I end up ultimately not doing those things. And then all those things that I know I shouldn't do, I end up doing those things. And then afterward, I go, why did I do that? I shouldn't have done that. Or why didn't I do that? I knew I should have. And then I find myself thinking, well, I want to do the right things, but then ultimately when I want to do the right things, I still end up doing the wrong things. And I don't even want to do the wrong things, but I still end up doing the wrong things. What is wrong with me? And I do find myself looking in the mirror going, wretched man, Schultz, you got big issues. Have you ever done the same thing? Maybe I'm the only one. Okay. I'm sure you have, right? Because frankly, we all have done this. And so the Apostle Paul, who is arguably a better Christian than you or me, is telling us, hey, I just want you to know I experienced this too. So that we read it and go, okay, well, I'm not the only one. Have you ever felt like you've got so many issues you're probably like worse off than everybody else in chapel? All right, so, um, uh, you know, I have felt often like, like I'm not dead to sin, but like very much sin is, is happening still, like, like sin is alive. Have you ever felt like sin is still alive in your life? I have. Okay, I have. So I'm going to go back to verse 5. 
And let me just point out a couple things that he's saying here in chapter 7. And uh, we're going to get to the key verse. Here's all I want to do today. I want to leave you with one verse. But I've got to work my way to it. So look at verse number 5, chapter 7. Notice what he's saying here. He says, For when we were in the flesh. What, is the, what does were indicate? Okay, past tense, right? So when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. So uh, people are going to die condemned because of their own actions. Uh, that's a were statement. But look what he says in verse number six. But now we, what's the next word? Are delivered. So he's talking about this is now how it is today. This is present tense. Now we are delivered from the law that being dead, wherein we were held, we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. I remember when I began to really grow in the Lord, that verse, I underlined it. I thought, man, that's what I want. I want a life of serving in the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. When you think of the letter, you think of obligation. You think of something that's got to be done, something you've got to do. But when you think of the spirit, the word you should think of is done. The spirit of God, the life that comes by the spirit is a life of done. The life that he's describing there of being dead, that's like the do life. None of us can do enough. And so we're delivered from that. Now we can live by the Spirit, not by the letter. Look at verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taken occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. And uh, so what does the law serve? Uh, you know this. Okay, what does the law serve? The law serves to show sin. The law doesn't create sin. Sin is there. What does the law do? It manifests sin. So the law works in us concupiscence. What is concupiscence? Other than a really big word, right? And a word you've probably never used outside of reading it in Romans chapter 7. Now, young man, that was very concupiscent of you. Uh, concupiscence. What is concupiscence? I know what concupiscence is. Concupiscence is something that I struggle with and something you might struggle with too. Um, have you, uh, do you remember Dr. Shaw, of course, he was just here a couple weeks ago. I could sit in my office and I'd know when Dr. Shaw was walking down the hall because he would tap the wall. And I don't know why, but he just, and I always knew where he was coming around. He'd be do, 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 tapping on the wall. Um, most of us don't think a whole lot about the walls. We're walking, you know, down the hallway until you see a sign that says, don't touch wet paint, <laughs> right? And when you see a sign that says, don't touch wet paint, what does it do to you? This is what it does to everybody. I couldn't care less about that wall or what the paint's doing on the wall. I don't think about the wall unless there's a sign, don't touch wet paint. All of a sudden, I'm thinking about it. I wonder how old that sign is. <laughs> I'm not the only one. How old is that? I wonder if that paint is still wet I bet the sign's old. I bet it's not even wet paint anymore. And so seeing the sign that says wet paint makes you want to do what? Touch the wall! Because that's concupiscence. It's like there's something in me that says if I can't, I want to. And if nobody told me I can't, I don't care. But the minute I say I can't, or they say I can't, I go, what? But I want to. Don't touch. Wet paint. Well, <laughs> it is wet paint, okay? 
So the law doesn't make us sin. All that the law does is shows us that we got a sin problem. Look at verse 9. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived, I died. And the commandment, which was ordained to life, uh, the, command, the commandment is in its, in its promise. If you keep the commandment, you'll live. That's the promise of the commandment. The problem is none of us can. So it condemns and kills. He says, but the commandment, which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. Why? Because of sin taken occasion by the commandment, deceived me. And by it, by the commandment, it slew me. Wherefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy uh, and just and good. Okay, so uh, just a couple more verses here. Uh, look at verses 13 to 14. Was then that which is good, speaking of the law, made death unto me? And the answer is no. Okay, no, the law was not made death unto me. It was sin. In fact, the law makes sin to appear, verse uh, 13, uh, to appear sin, uh, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. Uh, so sin would lie kind of dormant. It would still be a killer. But what the law does is it brings it right to the surface so it can be dealt with. Okay, so it's not all bad. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual. But I already read this before. I am carnal. That's present tense. That's not talking about how it was. That's talking about how it is. And I want you to know, we all are carnal. He says, for I know the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. And it says, sold under sin. And that's why I can look in the mirror at times and go, Schultz, you are a wretched man. Because there's a part of me that still tracks that course. And it's a problem. And there's parts of me that I want to do the right thing. Like, seriously. And I still do the wrong thing. And I don't want to do the wrong thing. But I still do the wrong thing. Duh! There's parts of me, there's a carnal part of me, that still tracks totally down that pathway. So here's the point. Here's the point. Do you know when you got saved, you very much became alive to God? You know, before you were saved, you were dead to God. When you got saved, you became alive to God. And so the real you, here it's called the man, your man, the real you, your man became connected to God, alive to God. You became a new man. But I want you to get this, and we're going to go on to the second point. Here's the point. When your new man, I'm sorry, your new man has no more power than your old man did. In fact, your man never had and never will have power. Your man, the real you, is powerless. Getting saved didn't make your man have power. Being lost, of course, your man had no power. Your man, the real you, the eternal essence of you, has no power. Getting a new man didn't get power. You just got connected to God. But your man has no power. So number one, the weakness of our man. Number two, the new marriage to power. The new marriage to power. All right, so going back to the, to the first couple of verses of chapter 7, it says here, um, Know ye not, brethren, speaking to them, but know the law, how that the law hath dominion over man as long as he liveth. Look at the illustration. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she should be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from the law, so that she 
is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Marriage is permanent until death. And uh, even if people can be divorced and legally get divorced, it doesn't change the fact marriage is permanent. And uh, there's a guy at my Sunday school table, and uh, he's older than me. He's in his mid to upper 40s. And his parents are older than him. That's how it usually works. Um, his parents are older than him by you know, many years, so they're probably like you know, 70s-ish. And uh, they've, been, they've been divorced, I think, for it's like 30-some-odd years. They've been divorced for a very long time. For whatever reason, neither of them remarried. So they've been divorced for a long time. They both live up north, kind of in the Green Bay part of this world. And uh, this guy in my class says that his parents still, almost on a daily basis, are having to deal with thoughts and bitternesses and whatever toward each other. Whenever he's with either one, that one only talks about the other one. He's so 30 years later, after 30 years of divorce, they're still connected. You know, they should just like figure it out and get back together. Um, the reality is that union that was created the day they vowed to one another, though they legally are separated, legally the marriage is no longer, essentially, they're still one. We like being married. Married is a good thing. Um, but here's what I want, you, I want you to see here. In this, in this illustration, he's talking about marriage being permanent. I think you get it. Um, you know, of course, if, there, if there's a death, then the woman can remarry. No worries. Um, that's totally fine. But I skipped over verse 4 in our initial reading. I want you to look at verse number 4. He says, wherefore. So he's told you this because he wants to make this point. This is the point. He says, wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. So let me ask you this question. In this, in this explanation, based on the illustration of marriage, in this explanation, who's the one who died? It says it right there. What does it say in verse 4? Who died? What does it say? What does it say? Right. We died. Ye died. Say, ye died. Um, he says, Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another. Well, this is why this is tricky. Um, my wife and I then have talked about, you know, what happens if one of us dies, you know, so I wrote her a letter, if I die, you can remarry. But I want you to know, if I die, I don't plan to remarry. Usually dead people don't remarry. It's just not what happens, you know. I was going to take some time and Google dead people getting married. There's probably a story about it. I didn't find one. But, you know, the truth is, if I died, um, you're not going to get a wedding invitation for my new marriage. Uh, you know, when I'm dead, I'm dead. Okay? So if I die, I've told my wife she can remarry. That'd be totally fine. But if I die, I'm dead. You don't remarry when you die. But what he is saying here, and this is why this is so tricky, and this is why I want, I want you to get this, is that the the remarried partner, or the remarried one in this illustration, is the dead person. So in verse 4, he is saying, Wherefore, my brethren, ye are become dead to the law. So when we died, the law lost its hold, so that now, as dead, we can be married to another. So the one dying is us. Okay, continuing on. Uh, look what he says in verse number one again. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. Well, Romans 6 has already, already established this fact. What happened to us in the law? 
we died to the law. So we're dead. So the law and us have broken, uh, or, well, the obligation of the law, so sin, the sin within us, have broken union. And it happened legally. Not because sin died, we died. That's the point. Sin never died. We died. And because we died, we are now free to marry another. And I feel like, as I've read Romans 6, 7, 8, you know, Romans, I have for so long thought, how come sin still feels alive? I know why. Because it is alive. Sin never died. Nothing about sin ever changed in this whole equation. Sin is as living, alive and kicking as it ever was. I died. And when I died, I had the right to remarry. Now, I want you to get this, too, in the illustration. In verses 2 and 3, he's speaking with reference to the woman. Do you see that there? He's speaking with reference to the woman. He says, um, the woman which hath an husband, verse number 3, so then if she marry another husband. So it's, it, it's with reference to the woman. So the illustration of marriage has all of us identifying with the woman's role in union. So uh, the woman has uh, the, in, in this illustration, the woman has died, uh, so now she can remarry. And so in the illustration of, the, of this union of marriage, the woman has the role of being under headship. Okay, so I want you to get this. Marriage union is leadership. So that woman was under the leadership of this one man, but if that man dies, she can marry another to be under his leadership. Okay, in the same way, all of us are naturally in union with sin. Well, sin never died. The only reason we're not in union with sin anymore is we died. And that's different than the natural realm. Because in the natural realm, when one partner dies, they don't remarry. It's the living one who remarries. But in the spiritual realm, it's the partner who died that remarries because the remaining partner still lives. Do you follow what I'm saying? Okay, so if you ever feel like in your Christian life sin is too alive, it's because it is. You think, well, I really thought I was dead to sin. You are, but sin didn't die. You died. Do you see what I'm saying? Um, because we died, it doesn't mean that sin died or even changed. It's still very much alive and kicking. Um, but it no longer has the right or the reign of leadership. Um, my wife is very sweet. Uh, she's, I think she's a very sweet, uh, sweet lady. And uh, she's made it a point in just our relationship to follow my leadership. And that doesn't mean that I'm always a good leader, and it doesn't mean there aren't times where she struggles to follow. But I would say it's characterized that way. You know, she just wants to know what do I want, and uh, I need to, to be decisive enough as a leader to lead. And, uh, but I'm telling you, if ever I die, my wife is no longer under any obligation to obey me anymore. Uh, though I would say in that note, it'd be good for you to follow along, you know, until somebody else comes on the scene. Um, but if I'm dead, It'd be really, really weird, you know, if my wife became like Miss Haversham, you know, and was trying to get, you know, whatever. She never married, I guess, right? Wasn't Miss Haversham? Whatever, okay, it doesn't matter. Um, but, you know, if my wife is still trying to get direction from me in my death, whoa, that'd be weird, right? Um, because if I'm dead, she's not under obligation to follow my leadership anymore, right? No, of course not, of course not. And in the same way, when we died, Sin has no more right to boss us around than I would in my death to her. That's the point. But I think we feel like, well, I don't know, this sin thing seems so alive. And this is what I want you to get. This is the whole point of why I'm preaching this. Is the reason you feel like sin has vibrancy is because sin never died. Sin is as alive as it ever was. 
And so there's a part of you that still needs to be, uh, there's, there's a part of you that still connects to the sin principle. I am carnal, sold under sin. But the point that he's saying here is you can live above that principle. Okay, um, so number two then, our new marriage is to power. And so we're now married to power. So my old man has, I'm sorry, not my old man, my man, the real me has no power. Getting saved didn't give me power, but getting saved connected me to power. So now I have a union with power, but it's not my power, it's uh, the power of the Lord Jesus. So thirdly, and I'm done, I want you to notice, and thirdly, there is no condemnation. I want you to notice the law of the Spirit. So here's, here's what he's saying. Look at verse 25 again, verse 24. Oh, wretched man that I am, who should deliver me from the body of this death? Oh, I just keep going the wrong way and I don't want to. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord so that, uh, so then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. So the mind in this case is dealing with, um, with your man, the, the real you. Uh, serve the law of God. So look at verse eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now if you use this verse when you're soul winning, no worries. But that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about condemnation before the throne of God. What kind of condemnation is he talking about? The kind of condemnation you feel when you look in the mirror and you go, oh, wretched man. That's what he's talking about. Have you ever felt condemned? Okay. You know you're not condemned before God, but do you ever felt condemned anyway? Have you ever felt condemned before you? I felt condemned before me often. I've looked in the mirror and felt condemned. And here's what he's saying. He's saying there is no more condemnation to those in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And so what he's talking about here. He's not talking about chapter 5 condemnation. He's talking about chapter 7 condemnation. And you don't need to feel it any longer. Look at verse number 2. He says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. I want your eyes to go back up to chapter 7, verses 21 and on. I'm done. Um, chapter 7, 21, and then on to the end. Look at how many times the word law appears. I find in a law, verse 22, uh, the law of God, the law of my members, the law of my mind, the law of sin, verse 25, the law of God, the law of sin. So what he's talking about in those verses is this principle, this principle warring within me, the principle of the real me who wants to follow God and follow that. And then this other part of me that has a, a warring principle that works against that. And there's this huge clash. And he says in verse number two, he says then, that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. And um, the reality is there is a greater law. The power you're, you, that, that you're in union with is greater than the remaining law of sin and death. You are no longer under obligation to the law of sin and death, but it's still there hasn't gone away. You're still, still pretty much alive, but you have no obligation to it. And so as long as you live in the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, you are free from the law of sin and death. And the man who lives uncondemned, this is self-condemnation, the man who lives uncondemned is a man who is dwelling in the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Because when you're living in the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, you're free from the law of sin and death. And if you look in the mirror and say, I've got problems, 
That's because you're living according to the law of sin and death. You don't need to live condemned anymore. You're not married to that anymore. But if you're trying to get free of that by hoping that at some point sin dies, then you're in huge trouble. Sin's never going to die. Sin's as alive as it ever was. But you did die. And so when pastor's preaching through Romans 6, he's going to get into 7, going to get into 8. I want to challenge your thinking today with this one thought. When the marriage broke, you died, not sin. And so if you feel like I'm confused why this isn't working, this doesn't work. Sin is still alive. It's because it is alive. It never did die. That was never the plan of God. The carnal part of you still has to deal with that sin principle. Sin never died. But you are now in a union with the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. You are in union with the power. Your man has no power. You desire to do right, so what? Desire to do right is not power. You can desire all day long to do right. There's no power there. The power is who you're in union with. And that's the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Okay, let's have you bow your heads. Let's just close in prayer. Thank you for your attention. Lord, I pray that as we, um, as we get into uh, these chapters, Romans uh, 6 and 7 and 8, as pastor preaches, um, Lord, I pray that we would all have spiritual understanding. And uh, Lord, I know all of us in here struggle with the, the reality of what's happening in Romans 7 and, and wanting to do right, not doing right, not wanting to do wrong and doing wrong and, and just the tension of that. Uh, Lord, I thank God through Jesus Christ that even though this sin is still something I have to deal with, I am truly dead to sin and I'm alive to God. Lord, I pray that we would not live guilty and self-condemned. May we know the spirit of life in Christ Jesus as truly delivering us from the law of sin and death. Uh, let me ask you a quick question here.